Chapter Sixteen of *The Green Rust* by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kirsten Weber. *The Green Rust* by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Sixteen, The Pawn Ticket. Oliver Cresswell awoke to consciousness as she was being carried up the stairs of the house. She may have recovered sooner, for she retained a confused impression of being laid down amidst waving grasses, and of hearing somebody grunt that she was heavier than he thought. Also, she remembered as dimly the presence of Doctor Van Herden standing over her, and he was wearing a long grey dust coat. As her captor kicked open the door of her room, she scrambled out of his arms and leant against the bed rail for support. I'm all right," she said breathlessly. "It was foolish to faint, but but you frightened me." The man grinned and seemed about to speak, but a sharp voice from the landing called him, and he went out, slamming the door behind him. She crossed to the bathroom, bathed her face in cold water, and felt better, though she was still a little giddy. Then she sat down to review the situation, and in that review two figures came alternately into prominence: Van Herden and Beale. She was an eminently sane girl. She had the beginnings of what might have been an unusually fine education, had it not been interrupted by the death of her foster mother. She had too the advantage which the finished young lady does not possess. Of having grafted to the wisdom of the schools the sure understanding of men and things which personal contact with struggling humanity can alone give us, the great problems of life had been sprung upon her with all their hideous realism, and through all she had retained her poise and her clear vision. Many of the phenomena represented by man's attitude to woman she could understand. But that a man who admittedly did not love her and had no other apparent desire than to rid himself of the incubus of a wife as soon as he was wed should wish to marry her was incomprehensible. That he had already published the bans of her marriage left her gasping at his audacity. Strange how her thoughts left all the events of the morning, the wild rush to escape. The struggle with a hideously masked man, and all that went before or followed, and went back to the night before. Somehow she knew that Van Herden had told her the truth, and that there was behind this act of his a deeper significance than she could grasp. She remembered what he had said about Beale and flushed. "You're silly, Matilda." She said to herself, employing the term of address which she reserved for moments of self-deprecation, "Here is a young man you have only met half a dozen times, who is probably a very nice married policeman with a growing family, and you are going hot and cold at the suggestion that you are in love with him." She shook her head reproachfully, and yet upon Beale all her thoughts were centered. And however they might wander, it was to Beale they returned. She could analyze that buoyancy which had asserted itself, that confidence which had suddenly become a mental armor, which repelled every terrifying thought. To this faith she had in a man who, a few weeks before, she had looked upon as an incorrigible drunkard. 
She had time for thought, and really, though this she did not acknowledge, she desperately needed the occupation of that thought. What was Beale's business? Why did he employ her to copy out this list of American and Canadian statistics? Why did he want to know all these hotels, their proprietors, the chief of police, and the like? She wished she had her papers and books, so that she might go on extracting that interminable list. What would Van Herden do now? Would her attempted escape change his plans? How would he overcome the difficulty of marrying a girl who was certain to denounce him in the presence of so independent a witness as a clergyman? She would die before she married him, she told herself. She could not rest, and walked about the room, examining the framed prints and looking at the books, and occasionally walking to the glass above the dressing-chest to see if any sign was left of the red mark on her cheek where Van Herden's hand had fallen. This exercise gave her a curious satisfaction, and when she saw that the mark had subsided and was blending more to the color of her skin, she felt disappointed. Startled, she analyzed this curious mental attitude, and again came to Beale. She wanted Beale to see the place. She wanted Beale's sympathy. She wanted Beale's rage. She was sure he would rage. She laughed to herself, and for want of other and better amusement, walked to the drawers in the dressing bureau and examined their contents. They were empty and unlocked, save one which refused to respond to her tug. She remembered she had a small bunch of keys in her bag. "'I am going to be impertinent. Forgive the liberty,' she said, as she felt the lock give to the first attempt. She pulled the drawer open. It contained a few articles of feminine attire and a thick black leather portfolio. She lifted this out, laid it on the table, and opened it. It was filled with fool's cap. Written on the cover was the word Argentine, and somehow the writing was familiar to her. It was a bold hand, obviously feminine. "'Where have I seen that before?' she asked, and knitted her forehead. She turned the first leaf and read. "'El Cigar Hotel, Furnos, Proprietor Miguel Porcerini, Index 2.' Her mouth opened in astonishment, and she ran down the list. She took out another folder. It was marked Canada, and she turned the leaves rapidly. She recognized this work. It was the same work that Beale had given to her, a list of the hotels, their proprietors, and means of conveyance. But there was no reference to the police. And then it dawned upon her an unusually long description produced certain characteristics of writing which she recognized. Hilda Glaum, she said, I wonder what this means. She examined the contents of the drawer again, and some of them puzzled her. Not the little stack of handkerchiefs, the folded collars, and the like. If Hilda Glaum was in the habit of visiting Dean's Folly and used this room, it was natural that these things should be here. If this were her bureau, the little carton of nibs and the spare notebook were to be expected. It was the steel box which set her wondering. This she discovered in the far corner of the drawer. If she could have imagined anything so fantastic, 
she might have believed that the box had been specially made to hold the thing it contained and preserve it from the dangers of fire the lid which closed with a spring catch released by the pressure of a tiny button was perfectly fitted so that the box was in all probability air-tight she opened it without difficulty the sides were lined with what seemed to be at first sight thick cardboard but which proved on closer inspection to be asbestos she opened it with a sense of eager anticipation but her face fell save for a tiny square blue envelope at the bottom the box was empty she lifted it in her hand to shake out the envelope and it was then that the idea occurred to her that the box had been made for the envelope which refused to budge until she lifted one end with a hairpin it was unsealed and she slipped in her finger and pulled out a pawn ticket she had an inclination to laugh which she checked she examined the ticket curiously it announced the fact that messrs rosenblaum brothers of commercial road london had advanced ten shillings on a gent's silver hunter watch and the pledge had been made in the name of van herden she gazed at it bewildered he was not a man who needed ten shillings or ten dollars or ten pounds why should he pledge a watch and why having pledged it should he keep the ticket with such care oliver hesitated a moment then slipped the ticket from its cover put back the envelope at the bottom of the box and closed the lid she found a hiding-place for the little square pasteboard before she returned the box and portfolio to the drawer and locked it there was a tap at the door and hastily she replaced the key in her bag come in she said she recognized the man who stood in the doorway as he who had carried her back to the room there was a strangeness in his bearing which made her uneasy a certain subdued hilarity which suggested drunkenness don't make a noise he whispered with a stifled chuckle if gregory hears he'll raise fire she saw that the key was in the lock on the outside of the door and this she watched but he made no attempt to withdraw it and closed the door behind him softly my name is bridgers he whispered van herden has told you about me horace bridgers do you he took out a little tortoise-shell box from the pocket of his frayed waistcoat and opened it with a little kick of his middle finger it was half full of white powder that glittered in a stray ray of sunlight try a sniff he begged eagerly and all your troubles will go foot thank you no she shook her head looking at him with a perplexed smile i don't know what it is it's the white terra he chuckled again better than the green not so horribly musty as the green eh i'm not in the mood for terrors of any kind she said with a half smile she wondered why he had come and had a momentary hope that he was ignorant of van herden's character all right he stuffed the box back into his waistcoat pocket you're the loser you'll never find heaven on earth she waited 
All the time he was speaking, it seemed to her that he was on the qui vive for some interruption from below. He would stop in his speech to turn a listening ear to the door. Moreover, she was relieved to see he made no attempt to advance any farther into the room. That he was under the influence of some drug, she guessed. His eyes glittered with unnatural brilliance. His hands, discolored and uncleanly, moved nervously and were never still. "'I'm Bridgers,' he said again. "'I'm Van Herden's best man. Rather a come-down for the best analytical chemist that the school ever turned out, eh? Doing odd jobs for a dirty Deutscher.' He walked the door, opened it, and listened, then tiptoed across the room to her. "'You know,' he whispered, "'you're Van Herden's girl. What is the game?' "'What is?' she stammered. "'What is the game? What is it all about? "'I've tried to pump Gregory and Milsom, but they're mysterious. "'Curse all mysteries, my dear. What is the game? "'Why are they sending men to America, Canada, Australia, and India? "'Come along and be a pal. Tell me. "'I've seen the office. I know all about it.' thousands of sealed envelopes filled with steamship tickets and money, thousands of telegraph forms already addressed. You don't fool me. He hissed the last words almost in her face. Why is he employing the crocks and the throwouts of science? Perilli, Maxon, Boyd Hyler, Ben Me. If the game's square, why doesn't he take the new men from the schools? She shook her head, being by now less interested in such revelations as he might make, than in her own personal comfort, for his attitude was growing menacing. Then the great idea came to her. Evidently this man knew nothing of the circumstances under which she had come to the house. To him she was a willful but willing assistant to the doctor who, for some reason or other, it had been necessary to place under restraint. "'I will tell you everything if you will take me back to my home,' she said. "'I cannot give you proofs here.' She saw suspicion gather in his eyes. Then he laughed. "'That won't wash,' he sneered. "'You know it all. I can't leave here,' he said." "'Besides, you told me last time that there was nothing. "'I used to watch you working away at night,' he went on, to the girl's amazement. "'I've sat looking at you for hours, writing and writing and writing.' She understood now. She and Hilda Glaum were of about the same build, and she was mistaken for Hilda by this bemused man, who had in all probability never seen the other girl face to face.' "'What made you run away?' he asked suddenly, but with a sudden resolve she brought him back to the subject he had started to discuss. "'What is the use of my telling you?' she asked. "'You know as much as I.' "'Only bits,' he replied eagerly. "'But I don't know Van Herden's game. I know why he's marrying this other girl. Everybody knows that. When is the wedding?' "'What other girl?' she asked. Cresswell, or Prado, whatever she calls herself, said Bridgers carelessly. She was a store girl, wasn't she? But, she tried to speak calmly, why do you think he wants to marry her? He laughed softly. Don't be silly, he said. 
"'You can't fool me. Everybody knows she's worth a million.' "'Worth a million?' she gasped. "'Worth a million.' He smacked his lips and fumbled for the little box in his waistcoat pocket. "'Try a sniff. You'll know what it feels like to be old man Millenborn's heiress.' There was a sound in the hall below, and he turned with an exaggerated start. She thought it theatrical, but could not know of the jangled nerves of the drug-sodden man, which magnified all sound to an intensity which was almost painful. He opened the door and slid out, and did not close the door behind him. Swiftly she followed, and as she reached the landing, saw his head disappear down the stairs. She was in a blind panic. A thousand formless terrors gripped her, and turned her resolute soul to water. She could have screamed her relief when she saw that the sliding door was half open. The man had not stopped to close it, and she passed through and down the first flight. He had vanished before she reached the halfway landing, and the hall below was empty. It was a wide hall, stone-flagged, with a glass door between her and the open portal. She flew down the stairs, pulled open the door, and ran straight into Van Herden's arms. End of chapter 16 Recorded by Kirsten Weber